What is going on, everyone? Mike back with another episode of Hobby Talk. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. I'm pleased to be joined today by my good friend, Ed Shovlin. He is a longtime YouTuber. His YouTube handle is Wesker Griff. And Ed, it's about time. It's 2019. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Greatly appreciate it. And yes, it's been incredibly long overdue, but looking forward to talking about 2018, uh, 2019, and what the hobby has in store for us this year. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun to kind of kind of recap a little bit about what went on in the hobby in 2018 and take a look forward towards 2019. So a lot to get to. But before we do that, for the people out there listening that aren't familiar with you, I would describe you as someone who's a four for four sport collector. You collect all four sports, but really focus in on the Philadelphia teams with the exception of baseball, where that sports collection is a little more expansive. And then you're also well known for your non-sports collection as well, as you uh, do a lot of the Game of Thrones cards, which is definitely a a product that's become really popular over the years. So why don't you uh, just kind of talk a little bit about those uh, collecting habits of yours? Yeah, I'm like you mentioned, I'm four for four. I do all four of the major sports, baseball, football, basketball and hockey. Uh, Also do a lot of baseball. Baseball is my primary focus, I would say, in regards to sports. That being because I'm just a huge fan of the sport of baseball. When it comes to the other sports, football, basketball and hockey, I mainly just focus on the Philadelphia area teams. So with baseball, I'm doing multiple rookies. I know I would say the last couple of years, I've really been expanding on picking up uh, key rookie cards uh, for baseball superstars. And then with the non-sports, I do Game of Thrones from Rittenhouse Archives. That's really kind of a passion project for me. I set collect all the autograph cards and there's a lot of them. So there's seasons one through seven, and then they also have a higher end product called uh, Valyrian steel. So I've been doing that for, I've been doing that since 2015, doing all the sets and I've completed the full run for season three, season four, and I'm one card away from completing season five. So it's been very difficult. If you look at some of the prices on those cards, they're very expensive. So going through this journey has really gained me a greater appreciation for people who do set collecting, uh, especially uh, in regards to sports too, because it's very, very difficult to locate some of these cards. And it just makes me appreciate how guys have to track down certain cards for their sets, especially like vintage cards in particular. I know the uh, high number vintage are hard to locate. So um, yeah, it's just renewed a lot of my love for the hobby and love it. Having a lot of fun doing it. And I think there's been a, I've talked about this before. I I feel like the baseball card hobby itself has been kind of rejuvenated over the recent years. And I, I think you can say the same about football, basketball. I, mean, I, I don't really follow basketball, but I know at least price-wise, there's been an influx with the international markets, a big deal there. But 
non-sports cards have really taken off in recent years as well. And, you know, you have all these Star Wars products that have come out. I know Walking Dead, um, there are a lot of products coming out from Tops with that. And, you know, I don't know how that's done price-wise. I don't think it's like ridiculously popular, but there is a you know, a strong fan base for that type of stuff. Uh, and Game of Thrones is just another one of those products. You know, you have all these TV shows and movie franchises where the cards have become, you know, really serious. It's not kind of like way back in the early 90s where it was like they put out a few comic cards here and there and stuff, but they weren't really taken seriously. Now there's a lot of high dollar chase stuff and a lot of things for people to collect and, you know, all of that stuff. So it's definitely a, a bigger market than I think some people realize. People who, you know, kind of focus specifically on sports that don't really kind of pay attention to that market out there. No, you're you're right about that. Non-sports is definitely expanding pretty greatly, and it's becoming more of an interest for the major car companies. Uh, Tops has really put a lot of weight behind their Star Wars uh, product line, and I know Panini has been looking into picking up some non-sports titles. But the two companies that really uh, do the most for non-sports collectors are Rittenhouse Archives, which is actually – a local company, Mike, here in Pennsylvania, they're in Jan- they're based in Jenkintown, and they're pretty much a labor of love in regards to how they do with their products. But there's also Cribzoic. Uh, that's also the other pretty major non-sports company, and they do Walking Dead. I know they did Ghostbusters, and they do a lot of the comics uh, shows, uh, the DC and some of the Marvel shows. But uh, you're seeing Tops and uh, Panini and also Upper Deck because Rittenhouse Archives actually uh, lost their license to James Bond cards. They made James Bond cards for close to like 10, 10 years. And uh, Upper Deck actually has the license now for the new movie. So you are seeing more of a, a renewed interest from the major companies to expand into that market. Yeah, because that's all part of pop culture. And if you can get trading cards back into pop culture with that stuff, I mean, that's all stuff to sell. Um, You know, I I think TV shows and movies are just something that appeals to such a fan base, uh, to such an expansive fan base. And that includes collectors. And a lot of people are into collecting stuff. And to make money, these companies, they need the base of hardcore collectors, people who are going to be they can count on to buy a certain uh, amount of stuff all the time, but they need to appeal to the generalized collector, people who might just pick up a few packs here or there, take a general interest. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. I know you obviously have that uh, incredible collection of Game of Thrones cards. It'd be interesting to see kind of how those cards um, – what happens to them over time once the show comes to an end in the next year or two? You know, I don't follow the show too well. I do know it's coming up, I guess, on its last season or so. But, you know, what happens in five or ten years? Obviously, that's been a, a hugely successful show and fans of that show will be around forever. And I think there'll be a little less interest in people – actively pursuing those cards in those sets but at the same time there'll be so many of them will end up in collections because the product run i have to assume is way lower than some of the uh, sports lines that the things end up in collections and they just don't go up for sale very often so it's going to be interesting to follow definitely and the final season is this year april so game of thrones went eight seasons 
and this is actually the final year for it. So someone has asked me this question before, and the way I look at it is I don't really collect these cards in particular for an investment purpose. I just absolutely love the show. I'm a huge fan of the show. It is nice to know if your cards retain value, but the way I look at it is, and I feel that if the show has a good season finale and universally across the fan base, people enjoy it, then I feel the cards will probably increase in value and more people will want to collect them. If the show has a season finale like maybe Texter, then people aren't going to be as thrilled about it. But I feel I feel that the way the show ends, the finale, the re, the response it gets uh, critically and across the fan base will ultimately affect the value of the cards. But to me, it's irrelevant because I don't really uh, – that's not important to me uh, in regards to the Game of Thrones cards. Well, let's get into a little sports. We'll talk a little bit about 2018, the hobby in baseball, um, the baseball perspective on it. And, you know, 2017, we had a real crazy Aaron Judge craze, and it was explosive, and people were going nuts over Judge cards, and obviously the values were high on them, and uh, people were really excited. 2018 comes around, and you kind of think to yourself, oh, products will be a little cheaper. There won't be as much excitement. That Judge craze was you know, huge, and it wasn't just Judge. You had Bellinger and Benatendi and Bregman, and there was a really nice rookie class in 2017. 2018 comes around, and all of a sudden, you have the hunt for Otani. Everyone is going berserk over Otani, and on top of that, you have just a nice selection of rookies, even a bigger pool of rookies to look forward to. You have Reese Hoskins, who was coming off a really explosive um 2017 late season call up you had Raphael Devers highly touted young prospect for the for the Red Sox and then as the season went on more and more prospects were coming up and being included in products like Glaber Torres and of course uh, Ronald Acuña Jr but the uh, 2018 run on rookies was was even more crazy, in my opinion, than the Aaron Judge craze. I don't know what your thoughts were, but the way Otani kind of exploded onto the scene with his cards and specifically talking about that Bowman and the Bowman Superfractor, kind of the hunt for that card, which was – I don't even know how to describe it. I, I guess you could kind of describe it as kind of uh, like the search for the golden ticket. It was – it was insane. You obviously had the people offering money if you pulled the card and got it graded. And then you saw everyone breaking Bowman baseball. Bowman, Bowman baseball blasters are flying off the shelves. You had people making videos with like their families. It was uh, it was something that you felt like you hadn't seen in a while in this hobby. Well, I think uh, that really has to do with the international market because Atani is a huge uh, prospect player over in Japan as well. So you have all the Japanese collectors wanting to pick up those cards as well. Uh, getting back to what you were saying, compared the Judge Mania to the Otani Mania, I feel like the Judge Mania was more 
uh, crazier on a local level. And what I mean by that is when you go to your local Target or you go to your local Walmart to pick up a blaster or a pack of cards, you couldn't even find anything in the stores. All the Topps Chrome products were picked clean. It was just impossible to find that stuff. Uh, you had to go online. Whereas with the Otani mania, I feel like it was just big all over. Um, and I feel like Topps uh, produced more for this year with Otani. Um, he had, uh, there was more cards available for him. Whereas I feel like with Judge, everyone was looking for that uh, Chrome uh, Series 1 uh, Chrome rookie. And everyone was looking for the color variations of that card. But with Otani, like you mentioned, people were going absolutely bonkers to find that super fractor since there was a bounty placed on it by Beckett and uh, high-end Japanese collectors who wanted that card. Yeah, it was crazy. I think the Otani thing, I guess, you know, you're right on with the – it was like a worldwide thing. No, you know, you had the international market is the way I guess I should have phrased it. Um, but I think – I think the judge craze was due to the fact that he was a big, big time home run hitter and a Yankee. That's what really got him exploded. I mean, if he got off to that start with the Milwaukee Brewers, that probably wouldn't have been quite that craze. His prices would be a little lower. I think the Otani thing was a little bit on another level only because he's something that we hadn't really seen. Uh, the way he was doing it since, honestly, Babe Ruth. I mean, there have been other guys who have converted from pitcher to hitter or hitter to pitcher, but a guy to come out of the gate doing both things and, you know, at times being dominating uh, both ways, I think was something fresh and different that, you know, really brought a lot of interest. And then the fact, of course, that he's the Japanese prospect. So you have all these people kind of collecting from across the world that aren't usually involved in the market necessarily um, was a reason there was such an explosion. And I, I really think a lot of people would kind of complain about Otani. They were kind of tired of hearing about it. But honestly, like I actually think he's still a little bit underrated by the general audience because I think a lot of people think it's just a craze and, hey, we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously injuries are concerns and who knows if he's going to end up being able to pitch. He's involved in the – had the offseason surgery, of course, so he's more than likely not going to pitch next year, but he will be able to DH. Uh, But this is a guy who did come out and he hit over 20 homers. Uh, he, he pitched. He pitched really well at times. Obviously, he wasn't able to pitch the full season, but I mean, he had a lot of on-field success. And I mean, he's not one of these guys. It's these wall scraping, three hundred and ten-foot home runs. I mean, he'll belt the ball well over four hundred feet. So he has a lot of ability. And I do think if he focused one way or the other, that would help him a little bit. So I, I think his career path is one of the more fascinating um, career paths for the future. I would agree with that. I feel ultimately the Angels are going to want to make him decide on what he wants to be or what he will have the most success in as a hitter or a pitcher. But one thing is for certain, he definitely has tremendous offensive ability. Any guy who is waiting for Tommy John surgery, who is belting 400-foot bombs, definitely will get the attention of collectors and baseball fans. And I think it's kind of can be a trendsetter. And, you know, if he can have success both ways, which, again, I don't know how long he'll do that. But, I mean, you can see maybe in the future more guys being able to play two ways, 
kind of more diversity. I, I I just think it's a really interesting time in baseball, and he's a fascinating player. But 2018, it wasn't just about him, like we mentioned. You have Ronald Acuna Jr., Juan Soto, who I actually didn't mention early on, and he's actually mostly in the back half of products. And with those young guys who are super young and just loaded with ability, um, you even start to forget about some of the guys like Reese Hoskins, who is a little older of a rookie, but you know has had a lot of on-field success so far. Uh, Raphael Devers, who struggled at times. I mean, just a huge and a really um, fascinating rookie class. And it includes guys like Victor Robles, who didn't even get to play. Miguel Andujar, who I didn't mention, who had a great offensive year. Uh, Walker Bueller, who had a just really impressive season, especially in the postseason. So what was your take on some of this rookie class? And was that something that got you excited um, hobby-wise? Definitely, because the pool of talent in Major League Baseball right now is absolutely incredible. There's so many rising young stars on various teams. I would say pretty much every team in baseball has at least one player that you would love to watch. Um, 2018 with the rookie class, Reese Hoskins, it was nice as a Phillies fan to see him play every day, and he had a very nice season. But the ones that impressed me the most were definitely Soto, uh, 18 years old, just coming up, doing absolutely incredible. Uh, anytime someone that young comes into Major League Baseball and has that type of success, that definitely catches your attention. Also, Acuna, I know he was absolutely incredible. Uh, he torched me in fantasy baseball uh, last year. I had the unfortunate pleasure of facing him when he had that five uh, five straight days with a homer, and then he got uh, plunked by the Marlins. Uh, but apps, there's so many great rookies, and also honorable mention, Walker Bueller, absolutely incredible postseason. Uh, just, you know, going on the radar for uh, – what he was doing and how he dominated. And it's not just about the rookies. It's about the young talent in baseball. And, you know, I, I think it's cool for people to collect what they collect. And, you know, we always talk about this hobby, how there's something for everyone in it. But to me, like, I, I love a lot of the vintage stuff, but I can't get away from the modern stuff either. Some of the cards that are produced are just beautiful, but also the players. I mean, the talent around baseball, like you mentioned, is just amazing right now. The influx of young talent, I think, has helped um, interest young collectors and get some people back into the hobby. And it doesn't have to just be the rookies. It's all these young guys, uh, young guys like Francisco Lindor, Christian Yelich, after being traded this uh, past offseason, really got a chance to play and play so well that he ended up winning the MVP award, uh, guys like Alex Bregman, who's a two-year player, second-year player, great, uh, great success in the postseason. And uh, I know you want to talk about Mr. Mookie there in Boston, who uh, who really took it to another level on the field, and of course that translates to a whole new level in the hobby. Definitely, and I wanted to touch on this that. De- uh, about Mookie Betts, but collecting wise, his 2014 update rookie. When I when the season started in April, you could pick up those packs and 
that card in particular, they were relatively extremely affordable. I know you could get the 50 card uh, update jumbo packs. I think they were a little under $20. Well, as the months went on and Mookie Betts just kept dominating the sport of baseball, those those packs and those cards kept increasing, increasing, increasing. And I did a video series on my channel called The Hunt for the Mookie, where I was basically looking for that card, uh, pack searching. And I got to the point where I couldn't do the videos anymore because the packs were just becoming more and more expensive and it wasn't worth it Uh so Mookie Betts, he was the MVP uh, last year, and the guy was just unstoppable. He was absolutely incredible, belting home runs, really being the face of that incredible Red Sox team that won the World Series. So, and everyone wants to gravitate, and that's one of the great things about the hobby now. It's it's really getting back to the rookie card, uh, the hits, the autos. They're great and everything, but the hobby is really getting back to its roots of looking at that key rookie card. And Mookie Betts' key rookie is the update rookie. And it's really, really awesome to see the hobby go back to that because I love rookie cards. I'm sure Mike loves rookie cards, too. A lot of people listening love the rookie. And it's just awesome to say I'm really, really pleased in the direction that the hobby's going. Yeah, I think there's definitely a trend going back towards rookie cards and, you know, there's still quite a demand for autographs and relics and autographed relics and all of that stuff. But rookie cards have definitely taken off a lot of people interested in collecting them, the PSA grading and the registries and Beckett grading and all that stuff, the grading, the encapsulation of cards, slabbed cards, I guess you can call it, uh, has definitely helped that as well. You have people... Um, kind of trying to put together or investing in certain players in the PSA 10s for the modern cards. Some people are just looking to fill out the collection. We'll go with the PSA Mint 9s, which is, you know, can be just fine for your collection. If uh, you're just looking to obtain that card, you want to know what it is. You don't need a the pristine card, but you just want to have one slab that's something you could use for a set registry. And the Topps Update cards have especially become the most popular of those key rookie cards. And we've seen a big bump for a guy like Max Scherzer, who people are finally kind of opening their eyes up to and looking at and realizing that this guy is, you know, on a career path that will end up in Cooperstown. And, you know, some people think he's a Hall of Famer already. He might be if he were to announce his retirement, but I, I think we all know he has a few years left. So Scherzer has had a quite a jump uh, over the last year. And then you're seeing other guys like Jacob deGrom and Aaron Nola. Their stuff's still very affordable, but there's been an interest. Like, okay, these guys had Cy Young caliber seasons, and you're seeing a renewed interest in their rookie cards as well. And then, of course, you have all the other stars, position players around baseball. And if they're in Topps Update, they're kind of picking up steam. The price is just gradually going up. Uh, I think a lot of people are trying to grab cards before they get to that, you know, Mike Trout level, which I know is a, a card that's, you know, you have a notorious history with, but uh, I don't know that anything's going to hit the level of Trout. I think he's on a whole nother level offensively, statistically, and kind of career-wise, but I do think that card is kind of set the market for uh, Topps Update to become one of the key rookie cards uh, in modern-day baseball. 
that card, in my opinion, is one of the greatest anomalies probably in the last maybe 50 years of card collecting. You keep thinking that card's going to go down. You keep the you, any logical person that looks at the price of that card and maybe I don't have a graph or chart or anything to chart how it's risen over the years, but I mean, it's just insane. You got to think at one point that card is going to level off and stabilize and it is never, it has never labeled, it has never leveled off. It has never done that. And it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And I know Mike Trout is the best player in baseball. He's putting up better numbers comparable to Mickey Mantle. So it's just it's just crazy. I, I I have no words to describe the crazy ascent of that card or make any logical sense about it. I just I I, I don't know what to say about that card. Yeah, it essentially doubled from last January, December, January. In within the season it jumped to it was going upwards of six hundred dollars i haven't followed auctions lately but i know it's still around a 500 or so dollar card for the most part so it's still it's just amazing how high it is but it it's the card you see a lot of people saying man i missed the boat on that card i really want to pick that card up and due to it being a modern card people want the gem mint 10 that's just what most collectors want um some people are happy to settle for a little less but generally speaking that's what people are looking at. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, Trout's still very young. He could change teams in a couple of years. He may not. Who knows? I mean, he's got a lot of years left to put up numbers and to be on top of his game. So he's just another one of those players who's just um, a youthful star in baseball. And I know he's been around at this point, you know, for about seven years or so. But one other thing that I want to quickly touch on with that card. Here's how insane that card is, the 2011 Trout. A, a PSA 8, an 8 on a modern card. Nobody really wants an 8 on a modern card. Find me someone who wants an 8 on a modern card. An 8 of that card sells for consistently $150. That, that is utterly insanity. I, I, makes no sense. That's all I got to say. It makes no sense. Yeah, to compare like a guy like Francisco Lindor, I mean, his card is right now, his tops update from 2015 is probably about $50 or so in a gem 10. So a nine will probably run you like 20 bucks. You might be able to get a little cheaper, but generally speaking, probably get 20. So an eight you could probably get for like, I'm guessing if you saw him, probably 10, 12 bucks, someone would settle on it just to get rid of it. And Mike Trout's obviously, you know, 10 times the price. Just insane. No words. No words, Mike. Well, I'm just happy I never had any in the past, but I did pick one up last year. I had five of them. I'm not even I don't even want to talk about it. Let's talk <laughs> let's move on. All right. Well, what what would you like to speak about next, uh, in regards to 2018 and the hobby? Uh definitely let's talk about the national. All right, let's talk about the National. The Nats National Sports Collectors Convention is uh is a huge show. It is the biggest card show in the country. It takes place once a year, generally rotates kind of every other year to Cleveland or to Chicago, Illinois, I should say. Um and then in between bounces back and forth. Cleveland, Atlantic City is in the mix. Obviously, it's been in other cities. But it is 
just as a collector, even if you went there with not a penny in your pocket, just to walk in that show and to walk around for hours upon hours, I mean, it'd probably take you a good three hours just to walk the show, just to browse. If you want to seriously look, it's going to take longer. You factor in the fact that you have all the big companies there like PSA, Beckett, all these big setups, all the card companies, Tops and Panini and Upper Deck, and the auction warehouses where you can kind of basically walk around. It's almost like being in Cooperstown walking around looking at all these amazing, amazing pieces of memorabilia. I mean, it's worth going to this show just to look around. When you factor in being able to go out there and buy some cards and add some stuff to the collection, it's a no-brainer. And then if you are involved in social media in this day and age, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or in our case, at YouTube, it is uh, – it's unbelievable. It's definitely an incredible experience. I've been lucky enough to experience it uh, for several years now and uh, – you know, I want to talk a little bit about – let you talk a little bit about 2018 National as you uh, made that cross-state and then flipping across the border over to uh, Ohio there to check out the National in Cleveland. It was uh, probably the highlight of your year, I'm guessing, in the hobby. Oh, definitely. The National was everything it lived up to, the hype that the National brought. It totally delivered. I drove all the way from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Cleveland, Ohio. And what Mike says about the National is 100% correct. When you go to the National, it's extremely overwhelming. There are so many tables to go to. Uh, the convention center in Cleveland is absolutely beautiful. It It's gigantic. I went to the National in 2016 in Atlantic City, and it completely blew it away. The convention center in AC is a lot smaller compared to the IX center that's in Cleveland. So when I went out to the show in Cleveland, I mean, it took at least like come the third come the third day, I was still finding new tables and new dealers that I did not see. It's just very, it's gigantic. There's so much to do, and the best thing about the national easily bar none though is if you've been online if you have a social media presence whether that be facebook instagram or youtube and you have a camaraderie with people online and you finally get a chance to meet these people uh that's the best thing in the world to finally put to finally see the person uh in real life, uh, not behind a computer screen and talk to them, hang out, you know, get dinner, have drinks, uh, talk about the hobby, go to a sporting event. I know the Indians were playing in, uh, in Cleveland that, that weekend. So was able to catch a game. Uh, and it was just incredible. It was so much fun. Yeah. And a lot of people, and I've brought this up before, whether it's on the podcast or in videos, but you know, people outside of the hobby are like, isn't it strange going and meeting these people you don't really know that well? And like the best way for me to describe it is once you're there and you're conversing and hanging out and talking, it, it feels a lot like getting back together with childhood friends or high school, college, whatever. You just – yeah. You're so like-minded and you have uh, conversed so much either 
through messages or phone calls, whatever it's been, or even if it's just watching videos, you're watching um, someone show off their collection, talk about their collection over the course of months or years. I mean, you really get a sense that you know the person and just everyone gets along so well. And it's just, it's an absolute blast. And it honestly, once you pull away from that for a few days, you kind of have that back to reality kind of momentary depression like oh man i gotta go and think about stuff other than this hobby and the sport and because that's all you're doing you're chatting about you're chatting about sports and collecting and breaking boxes with each other you know a lot of people don't get that opportunity to break boxes with other people um next to each other and just you know you break it you kind of root for each other to pull something great and you you know kind of just joke around if you don't and it's it's an absolute blast it's definitely it's a must like if you're serious about this hobby you're a serious collector i mean you really should do yourself a favor and find a way to make it out to the national if you can't do it every year you can't do it every year but even if you can do it every couple years it's it's absolutely worth it and i think you can do it at an affordable price you know, if you plan out ahead of time or if certain cities have better hotel rates than others, um, same thing with flights and stuff, you can plan stuff out and you don't, you know, you can have a great time and not spend a ton of money. Some people are fortunate enough to be able to, you know, bring tens of thousands of dollars with them and spend it all. And other people might only be able to bring a couple hundred bucks and that's fine too. I mean, I know we were hanging out with uh, our buddy Mike from Florida and I mean, I think he was just going around buying – he was looking for some rookie cup cards and a lot of cheaper cards and he had an absolute blast. And I really, over the last two nationals, haven't really picked up any huge cards. I've picked up some nice stuff, some cheap stuff, broken some wax, but my focus hasn't been to go there and just spend money for the sake of spending money. It's been to go take in the event, take in the atmosphere and hang out with all the people. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly an incredible experience. Definitely agree with everything you just said. And there's no right way to go to the national. Um, if you're, whatever you want to buy uh you can go they have some incredibly rare stuff you can find some great pieces for your collection uh like you said you can there's people that bring thousands of thousands of dollars that buy extremely high-end uh top shelf items and then you can go and browse the value boxes and trust me there are thousands of value boxes there and a lot of these value boxes, if you put the time in, you can find some very nice cards. You could be mining for gold. Uh, I know our friend Mike Fabian, he found several, several great rookies in some of those value boxes. Same with uh, Mike that you also mentioned, Hitman two, Hitman 23. He found some really nice things in value boxes. So if you put in the time and you go through these boxes, because most of the time, a lot of these dealers, they just they have like a gigantic box and they're not going through all these boxes. So the hot rookies could be in there. Like a bookie bets could be in there or another popular rookie that's really taken off. So, I mean, there's no, uh, there's no right way to go about it, but uh, it's just, there's could be, there could be fun for all. There could be fun. Uh, no matter if you go into the national with 5,000 or 50 bucks or, or, 20 bucks you can always find something 
Yeah, and I'm not trying to tell people what they should do, but I'm telling you, you should try and go to the national. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's really a unique experience. It comes once a year. It kind of feel has a family reunion without the drama attached to it. It's, uh, it's an absolutely just phenomenal time. It's so much fun, and you know. With that being said, certainly looking forward to potentially and hopefully and most likely attending the 2019 National in Chicago, which uh, I'm hoping to convince uh, convince you to go. I'm hoping maybe you take. Oh, your, I'm definitely going. Hopefully, maybe you take your first flight. I'm thinking maybe out of Trenton, New Jersey, we get something going. But the uh, the National in Chicago, honestly, I think that's one that. Uh, as far as location where it's set up, that they're all unique and they all have different things to see, at least the current run of them. Atlantic City, you're down the Jersey Shore. You have a chance to see the Atlantic Ocean if maybe you're out west or you haven't seen it. And you're not that far away from either New York or Philadelphia. So you have an opportunity to maybe if you go for a few days to go catch a game in one of those stadiums. Cleveland, you have an expansive center where it's set up and – it's it was probably a better setup than Chicago just because there was more room to kind of walk around, breathe, um, get away from the crowds for a while. But the hotels are a little more spread out. The hotels are certainly very affordable, though, in Cleveland. But Chicago has just that sweet setup where you fly in there and then you get a hotel. Most likely you can get a hotel where you can easily walk to the National, which is definitely um, – unique and it's definitely a little bonus because you can go to the national for four or five hours, buy some stuff, walk back to the room, put it back, lay down for maybe a half hour, rest up, and then head back over for a few more hours. Plus it lends itself more to everyone kind of getting together in one area. You're not worried about giving each other rides or everyone Ubering somewhere or any of that. I mean, you really have that great opportunity for everyone to just kind of walk and hang out um all over plus you have yeah. uh, you know a historic baseball stadium that you have an opportunity to see as well so chicago's definitely um a great setup i think location wise that's been my favorite setup that i've attended yeah i've heard that from people that been to the national in chicago is that the hotels are pretty much door to door to the convention center which is really great to hear and I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Chicago Cubs are actually playing that weekend, too. So a little baseball going on at Wrigley Field. So definitely that weekend is going to be incredible. I have definitely heard that and I'm aware of that. And I would like to go because the one time I was in um, Wrigley, I was there. It was Pirates, Cubs, saw bat in practice. Waited for them. I think they announced the lineups. And then all of a sudden, a few clouds rolled in. So they put the tarp on the field. They sat there for about two and a half hours waiting for it to rain. It rained for like 20 minutes. They called the game and then the skies opened up. And I was like, well, that was a hell of a way to fly from Philadelphia to Chicago to not see a game. But in that specific trip, I was still able to see a White Sox game and a uh, Brewers game. So I was in Wrigley for like five, six hours, but I did not 
ever see a game in Wrigley. So I'm hoping to absolutely do that this year. Um, it'd be an awesome experience for sure. But that's just another awesome part of the national. They're obviously, you know, you have that opportunity to do some traveling and see some ball games and go there with a crowd of friends. So that's definitely great stuff. We got to do it right. too. apparently according to all Chicago people, you got to send the bleachers. You got to get a few ice cold beers and just enjoy the game. Yeah, until I don't throw the ball back and then I get thrown out of the stadium. <laughs> That's always a possibility, so. So, yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to the National. I'm sure you are as well. Uh, in terms of 2019 in the hobby, we kind of have this new year here. There's still products coming out football-wise. Uh, to me, I haven't uh, gotten crazy into this year's football products. I... uh you know, I'd like to collect a few more. There's some products I'd like to buy, but you have a nice rookie class this year with Baker Mayfield kind of leading the way in terms of quarterbacks. Um, a lot of talented quarterbacks and running backs wise. Uh, have you been picking up anything football wise? I know you, obviously your, uh, Philadelphia Eagles are defending Super Bowl champions. They continue to roll on this year in the postseason as of the time of this recording. Um, how have, how is your, yeah. uh, how have the Eagles impacted your football collecting? Yeah, I pretty much have Eagles tunnel vision when it comes to picking up football cards. I only pick up Eagles cards. I don't really, unlike baseball, I don't gravitate towards picking up rookie cards or any of the superstars in football. I really just will pick up my singles, uh, like autographs, relics, rookies. I've been trying to actually, I'm going to make a focus of it in 2019 to try to pick up some vintage Eagles rookie cards. I definitely want to look into trying to get Chuck Benerick, Pete Retzlaff, Tommy McDonald. I want to try to look into getting some rookie cards, uh, PSA slabbed of those guys. But the Eagles won the Super Bowl last year, as I'm sure you know, Mike. Oh, and, yeah, I remember it. <laughs> and I definitely been trying to add autographs from players from that team. So looking around for certified autographs and Panini, um, they make like so many different products. I just wish they would make a couple more on card autograph products because uh, that's really my preference when picking up autograph cards. But. They've had they made a lot of nice ones. I really like the Immaculate Moments inserts that they recently made for 2018. They made one of Jake Elliott, uh, Chris Long and Brian Dawkins for the Hall of Fame. And they're really, really nice design cards. So uh, if you're listening, check those cards out uh, for your team to see what moments they made. Yeah, they definitely make some incredible, incredible looking cards. It's just some of the Panini products that include on-card autographs are just very unaffordable. And sometimes with football, I think the thing with football is just there's so many different autographs. And you, you can say the same thing for baseball, but I feel like there's more baseball that have value, that hold value, or that excel in value, where football, there's a large portion of them that just kind of decline pretty quickly. And I think that's something that's kind of hurt the football market a little bit. Like Saquon Barkley obviously had an incredible rookie year and very popular. And I'm sure a lot of people would love to add his autograph to the collection. But the trend with running backs in recent years is those cards really drop. I mean, if a guy becomes an all-time great, I'm sure it'll 
hold value or regain value, but it's been tough. So I, I've kind of fallen off football collecting over the years. Let's not speak of Kareem Hunt. Yeah, and then you have on-card, you know, off-field issues that kind of derail guys too. I mean, you think of all the people who spent money on Kareem Hunt, and then next thing you know, the guy's not even in the NFL. So we'll see what happens with him too. But bouncing back to baseball before we wrap things up, uh, 2019 rookie class, is there anything that stands out for you? Because I don't think we really know what to expect quite yet. There's a lot of talented players that haven't come up quite yet. Guy like Eloy Jimenez with the White Sox has a ton of ability, but uh, the hottest rookie next year might be a guy that, if and when he gets called up, uh, Hall of Famer's son has been taking the hobby by storm. So, Vlad Guerrero Jr. Yeah. Any thoughts on kind of the 2019 products coming out? Is there enough rookies to gain interest, or are people just going to be waiting for him? I feel like a lot of the times the rookies that blow up onto the scene are the ones that you're least expecting if that makes sense uh you we talked earlier in the podcast about aaron judge aaron judge relatively came out of nowhere for the collecting world he his cars were not expensive they were very cheap very affordable in fact the go-to guy was greg bird everyone was going crazy over greg bird because he was having an incredible spring training and then as soon as the season started, I think he went like 0 for 35 and then went on the DL and his cards went to the toilet. But Aaron Judge, his cards were super cheap. And then he had that incredible season and everyone wanted his rookie cards. I feel like the same will probably be for 2019. There's probably a couple of rookies out there that are under the radar. They'll have a great, they'll take the season by storm, come firing out the gates and people will want their rookie cards. But the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hype is pretty wild. I, if you look at some of the prices of his cards, I mean, you're really, really betting that he's going to be absolutely one of the faces of the league. And that's, uh, that's, that's too much of a risky gamble for me. So I would wait and see with him. Yeah. His first Bowman Chrome, um, just the base card is like 80 or $90. I think in a PSA gym in 10, and a nine isn't cheap either. It's pretty insane when you think about the fact that you could probably buy his father's cards at around the same price, maybe even cheaper yeah, a- in many cases. And his dad's a Hall of Famer. It's like this this kid's got a long way to go to get there. Yeah, when I see that, just personally speaking, I always tend to avoid that. There's just way too much risk involved there for me because the guy essentially has never played a game uh, in the majors. So, I mean, I'm sure he'll be an incredible player, not saying that he won't be, but uh, from a collecting standpoint, there's just too much risk to where I'm going to essentially gamble $80 that this guy's going to, his cards are going to increase and uh, be be living up to the hype. So sometimes you want to stay away from the hype a little bit. And certainly once he does finally make his debut, whether it be in April or May, you'll see in the second half of the baseball season, he'll start being produced in products. I'm sure he'll get like tops now and living set cards first. And then he'll be in some of the later season products. Maybe well, you know what product he'll be in, right? 
update, baby. He's got a great Get chance to be an update. Rookie. He could certainly be in Heritage High Numbers. He'll be in some of the higher-end products that release later in the year. And you you will have some variety to choose from. I don't know if he'll make Tops Chrome. Probably not. I mean, it depends. If he's up in April, he will be in Tops Chrome. But if he's not... He may be in Topps Chrome Update. We'll see what happens. But, hey, as a baseball fan, I mean, I'm enjoying the football postseason, of course. After that, to me, it's kind of a lull in sports. I don't pay a ton of attention to basketball or hockey, but I always get excited when spring training comes. And the end of January is, to me, the New Year's, the turning over of the collecting calendar once 2019 Top Series 1 drops. That, to me, is like... It's got that opening day vibe. I always have to go out and at least buy a few packs, whether it's, you know, my local card shop or Target or Walmart, just whichever place has the first blaster. Got to open some of them, have some fun and kind of get yourself geared up for the upcoming season. And to me, that's always a lot of fun. That's uh, pretty special and fun. And I always enjoy kind of browsing social media, seeing what all the new cards look like as someone who collects Phillies and collects all the Phillies team sets. I love to see kind of what images they use for the different players. So that's something to certainly look forward to in 2019 as well. And I'm sure you're also looking forward to this. I know I have a keen interest as well, but the 2019 Hall of Fame class will be announced in the next few weeks. And you have a slam dunk like Mariano Rivera, who the greatest closer in baseball history. He's a lock to get in. You have Edgar Martinez, who appears like he's on his way in currently with about nearly 40% of the vote being in. He's at 90%, so he's 15% ahead of the pace to uh, get himself elected in his final year of eligibility. You have a few other guys who have a shot to get in. Um, you know, Mike Mucin is trending towards getting in. Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens have a shot. But the guy that I think you and I are both most interested in He's uh, trending really well. Roy Holiday, who I said several weeks ago, I would say maybe like close to a month ago when we were doing our live stream, Mike, with uh, Ray from Philly, I felt that he was going to be a lock this year to get into the Hall of Fame. And I'm really, really pleased to see the vote tallies coming in for Doc. He was one of the most incredible pitchers that I've ever seen. In fact, I feel like he's one of the best pitchers I've ever seen at the stadium, at the ballpark. And I've seen a lot of great pitchers, you know, over the course of the 90s and the 2000s. And he was just really, really solid. Uh, pitched a perfect game, uh, no hitter in the same season. Uh, Cy Young Awards, so many accolades. And he's looking like he's definitely going to get in. Unfortunately, he did pass away um, in an airplane accident. and. He's he deserves to get in, and I'm glad to see that the writers are doing doing the right thing, getting him in there. Yeah, and I've heard some people kind of make the case like, oh, he might not have been a first ballot if it wasn't for the accident. And to me, he should have been a first ballot no matter what. I mean, the guy was incredible, like you've you've mentioned. I mean, he had a great career, and he had a great career in a time when offense was. Explosive. I mean, he pitched the 2000s with the Toronto Blue Jays, 
the one team that really had very little success uh, in that division. Not that, you know, Baltimore wasn't lighting the world on fire either, but I mean, he had to pitch every five days. He's pitching against the Red Sox who won multiple world series during that decade. The Yankees who are a perennial powerhouse who won multiple world series against the Tampa Bay Rays who even reached a world series. So he was pitching in competitive games day in and day out and pitching great. He put up a lot of numbers. He didn't have the lengthiest career because he got things going a little later. Didn't come up and light the world on fire at age 20. But, I mean, complete games, shutouts, just an incredible pitcher, like you mentioned. The postseason no-hitter, so one of the great moments in playoff history. Threw a perfect game. Just unbelievable. If there's one word I had to use to describe his career, I would say dominant. I mean, and we also need to think about he pitched in the toughest division in baseball for the overwhelming majority of his career. And for pretty much his entire career, he pitched in very hitter friendly ballparks. He pitched in Rogers Center, very hitter friendly. I mean, look at the AL East. They're all hitter friendly ballparks. You got Fenway, Yankee Stadium, the Trop. They're all hitter friendly. And then he goes to the Phillies, Citizens Bank Park, which is also an extremely hitter friendly ballpark. And despite all those disadvantages, he was still incredibly dominant. He put up complete games. He was, you're not, you don't even see that anymore in baseball. You rarely see even guys like Max Scherzer, Clayton Kershaw. I mean, they're lucky if they get two, two complete games, two to three complete games a year. Roy Holiday would get like four to five. He had, I mean, the guy he had multiple was just years incredible. where he had 10, so he was hitting double digits a few times. I mean, incredible pitcher, had a great career. Um, so he absolutely uh, deserves to be in and looks like he will be in. Obviously, it's it hasn't been announced yet, but it's certainly trending in that direction. So it's going to be uh, interesting, and I'm definitely looking forward to uh, maybe next fall or maybe sometime later in the summer. A few of the uh, Philly guys taking a ride up to Cooperstown to check out that plaque, check out the town. So that's one of my 2019 goals is to get you up to uh, Cooperstown, New York. So what do you what do you say about that? Definitely. I'm definitely down with that. And one other thing I definitely want to just touch on, by the way, I said definitely like five or six times there. Well, but, you definitely have your opportunity to definitely make that point right now. Yep. I, I just want to say – I've been hearing it around Philadelphia a little bit on what team Doc is going to go into the Hall of Fame as, and it's a no-brainer. He's a Toronto Blue Jay. I mean, he had some great moments here in Philadelphia, and we loved having him here, but he is a Blue Jay thrown through, and I hope to see a Blue Jay cap up on this plaque in uh, Cooperstown. Yeah, I think they would definitely go with that type of tenure difference. They would definitely go with Toronto, but obviously he's, you know— he had some incredible moments in Philadelphia, so he'll be uh he'll definitely always be remembered as a Blue Jay and a Philly, but primary years spent with the Toronto Blue Jays. Hopefully they go with that classic Blue Jays hat, not that uh that nightmare uh black uniform they had there for a few years. In my opinion, one of, if not the ugliest uniform in Major League Baseball history. Just yikes. The back the the like Frank Thomas Blue Jays season or two. Oh, those uniforms were atrocious. But uh, before we wrap things up, just uh, some other thoughts on the Hall of Fame, Ed. Any uh, any surprises here? Any other guys that you think uh, are trending well to get in eventually? Obviously, maybe not this year, but 
Well, I think the biggest surprise, and this, well, he was elected. Well, he was elected, technically. Harold Baines. Harold Baines. We didn't even touch. We didn't even talk about him. Oh, we skipped right over the Veterans Committee because that just gets people upset. <laughs> uh, I, I think the the nickname going around was uh, Stranger Baines. Uh, for Harold Baines, uh, zombie collector was saying that a couple of days ago. It's but interesting because he obviously was a really good player. He had a really good career, nice career, lengthy career. Um, but it it is amazing because I I was looking forward to seeing who would be voted in, who would be elected that day. So I tuned in that night, and I definitely expected Lee Smith to get in. I. Honestly, either way, even if Lee Smith didn't get in, it wouldn't have really affected me either way. I, I think you can certainly make a case for Lee Smith, but I think he has some deficiencies and there's some reasons he wasn't voted in um, by the writers at one point either. But no no problem with him getting in. I thought George Steinbrenner had a shot just because of what a big name he is and being associated with the Yankees. So I was interested to see who else got in. Obviously, I would have loved our uh, our buddy Charlie Manuel to get in, but I certainly didn't expect it. But when I heard them announce it and the first announcement was Harold Baines, I was just like, wow, I did not see that coming. I mean, because if you're associating Harold Baines with the Hall of Fame, you all of a sudden start thinking, well, you know, why not Don Mattingly, who had a dominant portion of his career, he had more dominant years than Harold Baines ever had. He didn't have the length of career. Guy like Dale Murphy. Even you start tossing in Will Clark, who I don't think Will Clark should be in the Hall of Fame, but I mean, I don't know. It was definitely, it was absolutely uh, surprising when Harold Baines got in and the effect it had on the hobby is even more fascinating because as soon as that was announced, literally seconds later, I typed up, typed in a search to eBay and I saw PSA nines for $9 and I thought about buying one because I was like, this card's going to go up. Boom. They all sold within minutes. And next thing you know, they're up there and they're selling for like 50 bucks and then 75 bucks and then like 150. I'm sure the price has calmed down since then, but the run on his grade at rookie cards was unbelievable. And I'm sure there's been a little boost for his autographs. I have a few Harold Baines autographs. Um, I haven't dug them out since, uh, since that announcement was made, but the run, on, how the, many of the run on his, uh, on his cards in the hobby was just fascinating. I'm wondering how many of those sellers actually went through with the $9 purchases because you know those sellers probably want to pull those cards down as quickly as possible. Yeah, they probably hit cancel order, reason for cancellation. It's the damnedest thing. My dog grabbed the card and bit it in half. It is ruined. Oh, no, I am very sorry. I will refund you immediately. And then they went and created a new account and popped it up there for $150. i am sure that happened at some point. That is the Stranger Baines effect. But it it's definitely an effect, and it's – I think the fact that a guy gets, elect, uh, gets um, elected to the Hall of Fame and eventually inducted certainly boosts their, their value and the interest in those cards, and that's just natural for it to happen. Guys are going to get – a little hotter, but I think the, uh, the set registry effect on that card, you know, is what really drove those values like that. People wanting to get that card in their collection. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with 
the current crop of guys who are being voted on, how much that effect has on their cards. Um, the guys who just miss out that are trending towards getting in eventually, you know, after they don't get in this year and once people are into the season and they're focusing on the current players, that might be a good opportunity to maybe pick up a Bonds Clemens. Uh, Kurt Schilling, some of these guys who might not get in this year, but are definitely looking like they will get in. Um, so it's always interesting to see how the hobby, uh, fluctuates. I know you and I have discussed the Roy Halladay rookie cards from 1997. He only has a few. He has Bowman's Best, Bowman and Bowman Chrome. And those cards have been picking up steam and they've really, really seen an increase in the last month or two. And, uh, once it's out there that he's been elected, it's, you would assume those prices will bounce up even more so as more people who aren't necessarily following the trends go, oh, I need to pick that up for my collection or my registry or whatever. No, the Roy Holiday card, that the 97 Bowman Chrome is the card to want to uh, gravitate towards. But as you well know, Mike, that card, I would say, has only come up to auction maybe a handful of times within the last year and a half. So even knowing that and feeling confident that Roy was going to get into the Hall of Fame, trying to get acquire that card has been difficult because it just the Gemman 10 just does not come to auction. And the few that are on eBay now are astronomical. I think the cheapest one is like $400. So well, the, population, the, the population is very low on the 10. So you got to assume most of those are in collections already. So I would think my assumption is now the people who have them that are looking to move them, they're maybe more so they're like, eh, I don't really want to move this, but I'll move it for this kind of price. So uh, I think that's one of those uh, kind of effects why people are listing them just so high. I guarantee you the day after the Hall of Fame announcement, you will see maybe like two to three of them newly listed on eBay for probably like 400 to 500 bucks. Would not surprise me at all. And I did recently pick up the Mint 9. I finally was able to, because I'm not going to pay $400, buy it now for a Gem Mint 10 on, even though I love Doc Holiday. So I was able to get the Mint 9 for 50 bucks, which is a very, very good price. And I imagine if you're listening to this podcast now, trust me, the Gem Mint 10, you're not going to be able to find it. You're going to have to get the Mint 9. And if you see one, pull the trigger because it's only going to go up higher and higher. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. But any uh, final thoughts on looking back to 2018 or looking forward to 2019 before we wrap this up, Ed? Not much to say about 2018 since we touched a lot on it already, but I am so looking forward to 2019, the National in Chicago, the final season of Game of Thrones. I can't wait for that. I mean, it's going to be crazy. Then we also, there's so much going on in pop culture. I'm also really looking forward to uh, in uh, the uh, the sequel to Infinity War, Adventures Endgame. So a little nerd out there. And uh, looking forward to the Philly season. Uh, it's going to be a very well, the off season still has to finish, so we'll see where guys like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado go. Hoping the Phillies can get maybe Harper, and uh, then the baseball season starts. And 2019 is looking amazing, so really looking forward to it. I agree. I'm definitely looking forward to 2019. Looking to hopefully achieve some hobby goals. 
add some awesome vintage Phillies cards to the collection, continuing to add to the collection, maybe uh, pipe things down a little bit, be a little more responsible with things, but definitely, as you mentioned, that Bryce Harper and Manny Machado fiasco going on here in the offseason, just would like to see it resolve itself and kind of then be interested to see, you know, how it affects the teams that these guys end up on would agree with you on Bryce Harper. Would love to see him in those red Phillies pinstripes. But I'm also interested to see uh, where their hobby potential goes because right now it's not a bad time to invest in Manny Machado or Bryce Harper if it's a player you like. They're both guys who are very young, 26 years old. They have really good career numbers for a player that age. They're trending towards Hall of Fame numbers. Of course, there's a long way to go in their career. But right now, Orioles, Dodgers, Nationals fans aren't really buying because they don't know if they're going to be back. And there's no other team associates. There's no really team collectors chasing those guys' cards right now. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. So you can actually see some of those cards at pretty good prices. I've picked up a few here and there. So that's definitely a little hobby tip there. If they're guys that you want to add to your collection – because once they do sign, you probably will see a little bit of a spike of interest. And then from there, it all kind of depends on what they do on the field, of course. So I appreciate everyone listening to this episode of Hobby Talk with Mike O. I hope to do more of these this year. The goal is to put out at least 20 episodes. I know I say that all the time and then you get busy and a couple months goes by, but Absolutely looking forward to 2019 in the hobby, 2019 in sports, 2019 on this podcast. Ed, I appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I had a lot of fun doing this podcast. It was a great time, and I hope everyone out there listening completes all their goals, collecting goals for 2019, and has a very happy and prosperous 2019. And Ed, hope to have you back at some point and so many others from around the collecting community. Appreciate once again, everyone listening. If you have any feedback, post a comment down below, whether you're listening to this on iTunes or SoundCloud or YouTube. Post some comments, let me know some stuff you'd like to hear. And again, appreciate you listening Happy 2019. Have a great one.